Father, we thank you for your grace that enable us to come to the knowledge of the truth and of your Son, Jesus Christ, who had done all the work that is necessary for our salvation. Help us, Lord, today as we explore what you have planned for us in terms of our, the work that we do for those that are around us, for our neighbors, and even for ourselves. Pray that your spirit would move in our midst and help us to come to the knowledge of the truth. And it would set us free, free from the bondage of this life and of our thoughts and of our endeavors and allow us to truly enter into the peace in knowing that everything has been done for us and now we are heirs to God's inheritance and that we are responsible for the treasures of your kingdom in the distribution to this world that we live in. In the name of Jesus we pray. Amen. Let's go to Titus chapter 3, verse 8. This is a faithful saying, and these things I will that thou affirm constantly. Now Paul is telling Titus to make sure you teach the church this a lot or constantly, that they which have believed in God might be careful to maintain good works. So here Paul is telling the church, make sure that this is what we do uh, on a regular basis to maintain good works. These things are good and profitable unto men. The good works that we do is not profitable to our salvation or man's salvation. The only thing that's profitable to man in terms of salvation is Christ's work, not our work. So nothing that we can do will contribute to it. Number one, how work is unprofitable for salvation. We are saved by faith through grace alone. It is the work of Jesus Christ that saves us. It is not our own work that will save us. This is the foundation of our Christian doctrine, is that we are saved by faith alone and not of works. In Ephesians chapter 2, verse 8 to 9, For by grace ye are saved through faith and not of ourselves. It is the gift of God, not of works, lest any man should boast. Nothing that we do contributes to our salvation. We're not talking about salvation here when we talk about good works. We are only talking about the other side of being a Christian. Our salvation is the work of Christ. We are saved because of what Jesus Christ did for us, His life. He saved us from condemnation of the law by His perfect obedience to the law. So He did that for us. We cannot do it. And he satisfied God's demand for a perfect life because God demands a perfect life. He placed Adam in the Garden of Eden. He placed a perfect man there. But then work becomes distorted and become toil and labor and agony because sin entered the picture. And Jesus restored that work. His death, he saved us from the wrath of God by dying for the sin that we inherit from Adam. His death, what it does is that it propitiated God's wrath on us. So his work completes the work that we should have done, but now Jesus did for us. His death, instead of the death that we should have died, he propitiated for us on the cross. And then his resurrection, of course, will be the way for us to be resurrected out of this body and into everlasting life. So the work of Jesus Christ completely saved us. 
all aspects of God's salvation in restoration of our life back to the first nature that God has intended for us as restored by Jesus Christ. Secondly, by faith through grace alone that we are saved, by believing in Jesus Christ and what he has done, this is called the good news. We are saved, nothing we can do, nothing that we ever can do will save us. The only thing that we have is the grace of God enabling us to have faith in Jesus or the gospel that saves us. We must return to the gospel promise every time the devil assaults us and says that you're not saved, you're not loved, we need to return to the gospel promise. It is faith that remakes us inwardly so that outwardly we may do good works for others. You can say that the prerequisite for good work is that we are saved. It is not that we do good work to be saved, but we are saved so that we can do good works. The restoration of good work, it was not work that defiled man, but disobedience through work brought his downfall. Therefore, work in itself cannot restore us to salvation. Rather, work was God's gift to man so that he can participate in the creative endeavor of the Creator. Jesus Christ restored work to its rightful place in the life of a Christian. It is the same work that God has ordained for Adam. Now, Jesus Christ restored that work for us, and now if we engage in that work, there will be joy. Now, the pleasure of working for God since the beginning, God intended work to be a pleasure, the joy of being part of God's creative process. Adam was placed in the garden not to laboriously digging and pruning and fertilizing the plant, but he actually was there to enjoy the creative work of God. He was there to see the flower blossom and bloom and the tree grow infinitely forever. Everything that we do now after sin we know in the back of our minds, yeah, it bloomed today, but it will die tomorrow. We don't put enough soil, the right kind of soil, then water it, you know, it will die. Because of that aspect of death and decay and dying in the back of our minds, we can't truly enjoy the work. If we work, and the work infinitely grow and prosper and expand and becomes more beautiful, infinitely beautiful and it never decays, it never fails. That, that would be awesome. That would be so joyous if we can engage in that kind of work. And that was God intended for Adam. The water came from the ground. It was not that Adam has to water it. But he just was part of this creative work of God. And Jesus restored that for us. Our work will ultimately end in death and Adam's sin caused the creature to become bondage to corruption. Paul talks about this, for we know that the whole creation groaneth and travaileth in pain together until now. Because of our downfall, our sin, we cause the whole creation to fall with us. He talks about how creation is waiting in pain for the day of the restoration of the sons of God. And Jesus restored this work for us. Let's look at 2 Timothy chapter 2. Verses 20 and 21, I'll read it for you. But in a great house, there are not only vessels of gold and of silver, but also of wood and of earth, and some for honor and some for dishonor. If any man therefore purge himself of these, meaning our iniquity through Christ's salvation, he shall be a vessel of honor, 
in this world, there are vessels that God will use for dishonor, and there are vessels that God will use for honor. And he's drawing this distinction that those who have been redeemed by Christ, we will be used by God for honor, as vessels of honor. And he continues to say, He shall be a vessel unto honor sanctified, and meet for the master's use, and prepared unto every good work. So God has intended for us to do good works, even though all work does not contribute to our salvation, ultimately, and justification. So those who are in Christ are no longer dishonored vessels, but we actually have a purpose. And having purpose in this life gives us joy because we have a purpose. The most depressing aspect of being alive is that we know that we have no use. But knowing that we have a purpose that God intends for us to be useful, it brings us joy. Not that we are worth or it merits any kind of standing before God, but it brings us joy in living. So those who are in Christ are no longer dishonored. We are vessels of gold, silver for honor. We've been purged from our iniquities. And because we have been purged from our iniquities, we're no longer ravaged by our conscience or by our guilty conscience. But we are now free, set free, to engage in good works on behalf of Jesus Christ. Looking unto Jesus, the author and finisher of our faith, who for the joy that was set before him endured the cross, despising the shame, and is set down at the right hand of the throne of God. The form of God is embodied in Christ. The work that Jesus did is manifested the Father's glorious form. Joy, if you think about happiness, what is the ultimate happiness? The ultimate happiness is to be able to see God. That is the ultimate happiness. Because God is perfection of everything. And if we get a glimpse of perfection or the glory of God, then we will have this what's called a beatific vision. Meaning we are completely and utterly happy when we see the glory of God. The children of Israel and the golden calf, and they were worshiping the golden calf. God was displeased, but Moses was horrified. He was angry, and he was so angry and upset to the point where he told the children of Israel to kill each other. You can imagine the kind of anger that was in him. Of all this, in the end, the only thing that would satisfy him is his prayer to God. Show me your glory. This is the only thing that would cover all of this mess that had happened. God actually showed him the back of his robe. That is the only thing that restores joy. The glory of God, this beatific vision of God, is embodied in Christ. And when we contemplate or meditate or imitate Christ, we get a glimpse of this glory. And this is how we come to the beatific vision, how we come to the fullness of happiness, at least in this flesh. We'll never come to the fullness of the beatific vision when we are there in front of God. But in this life, we can come close to this beatific vision in our meditation and in our imitation of Christ. How is this work profitable unto men? The duality of love. The scribe came and asked Jesus, what is the greatest commandment, Master? Luke chapter 10, 
when the scribe asked Jesus, what is the greatest commandment? Jesus answered the way that it should be answered, not the way that the question was formed. So in Luke chapter 10, let's look at verse 25. And behold, a certain lawyer stood up and tempted him, saying, Master, what shall I do to inherit eternal life? He said unto him, What is written in the law? How readest thou? And he said, Thou shalt love the Lord thy God with all thy heart, with all thy soul, with all thy strength, and with all thy mind, and thy neighbor as thyself. And he said unto him, Thou hast answered right. This do, and thou shalt live. The question was, what is the greatest commandment? The answer are two. We tend to, just like a lot of religion, they tend to do one or the other. In the teaching of Christ, it is both of these things that is necessary. So it's not just your piety and devotion to God, but it's also your responsibility and love for men. It, it, it's both. The gospel tells us that you cannot love God without loving men. In 1 John 4.20, If any man say, I love God, and hate it, his brother, he is the liar. For he that loveth not his brother whom he hath seen, how can he love God whom he hath not seen? We can't say that we love God if we hate our brother or if we don't love our brother. John says that it is impossible for you to say that you love God if you can't love your brother. Now, the other way is also true. That's why this is a paradox. You cannot love man without the love of God. Because God is love, and without the love of God, then how can we love our neighbor without the love of God that is in us? It is something that is not sequential. It is something that has to be simultaneous, synchronous. God loves overflows in us, causing us to love our neighbor, and in turn, loving God through loving our neighbors. Jesus says, if you've done this to the least of these, you've done it unto me. So loving God in a way through loving and serving people, then that love is expressed through Christ in our love and service to men. I want to talk about two things, the dual aspects of this love. The love of God, I call that faith, and the love of man, I'll call that good works. Love of God is faith. And the aspect of faith or the quality of true faith is uncompromising. Love the Lord is the first commandment. Without it, there cannot be second. So there is an order to the two sides of love. And the first that is required is faith. Loving the Lord is faith, meaning we obey God. That is how we express love for God. That has to come first. To love the Lord God with every part of our being, it is our heart, our soul, our strength, and our mind, meaning we put everything into it. We cannot compromise our faith. If we compromise our faith, then it is not loving God. Faith is uncompromising. Jesus says, if you love me, then you keep my commandments. How do you keep God's commandment? Trust in the gospel of Jesus Christ above all else. To love God is to have unwavering faith in the gospel of Christ. But my friend said this, the Bible says this, I believe in the Bible. But I feel this way. The gospel say this, I believe in the gospel. There's no compromise in faith. 
Faith supersedes all of our understanding, our senses, our feeling, what we see, what we hear. We need to return to the gospel and say, this is what the gospel says and this is what I believe. And that is faith. It's uncompromising. We must go back to the gospel in times of uncertainty, even when our inclinations, feelings point away from Christ. We must choose to trust and believe in the gospel promise. That is faith. So it's uncompromising. Now, the other side of commandment, which is love your neighbor, I call that love. Um, and love is compromise. First Corinthians chapter 9, verse 22. I am made all things to all men that I might by all means save some. Love toward men is compromising. Because faith is uncompromising, it is the principle, is the first principle that will always stay true. We will never compromise that there is any other God beside God. There's no other way besides Jesus Christ being the way, the truth, and the life. It's uncompromising. But love, when we deal with men, it is compromising. We can be all things to all men. What do you need me to be? To the weak, I will be weak. To the strong, I'll be strong. If you need me to do this, I will do this. If you need me to do that, I will do that so that I can win some. Sometimes we are so rigid in our service to others that we need to do things based on our standard of quality or based on our standard of principle that we unwilling to compromise and therefore we won't be able to serve people. Love is compromise. Many believers live a devoted life and they believe that their devotion to God is good enough. That's the only thing that they need. And the aspect of serving others, they would point to, well, I'm doing this for God. So I don't need to do other things. Well, Jesus actually made a lesson out of that. He says that you took your devotion to God and you neglect your parents. That is wrong. That's not religion. And some religion will go the other way. And even Christian religion, I do all this charity work, but their faith is completely compromised. It's okay if, you know, all religions are okay, but the foundation of the gospel is faith is uncompromised, but we're willing to do anything because we are set free from the condemnation and the judgment of the law. We are now free. Remember the story of the rich young ruler? He came, he's ready to ask Jesus this question. Master, what shall I do to inherit eternal life? And Jesus says, he will keep the commandments. And he said, yes, I have done this from my youth up. And then he said, the other aspect of the commandment, and that is, go sell all you have, give it to the poor, come and follow me. And here's what the story goes. And when he heard this, he was very sorrowful because he was very rich. Now, some will believe that he doesn't have salvation. I don't think this at all. Because the following verse says that, for it is hard for a rich man to enter into the kingdom of God. If you think about the kingdom of God is with us and is not something that in the future, it is with us now, then what Jesus is saying is that you can be outside the kingdom or you can be in the kingdom. If you are outside the kingdom, your work will bring you sadness and sorrow. If you are in the kingdom, because remember, this is an Israelite. He's a chosen person of God. I'm not talking about salvation at all here. What he's saying is that happiness, joy, happiness, when you are able to serve, when you are able to engage in this ministry to the poor and to the, the lost. 
Otherwise, he would go away. Even though he kept the commandment, he went away sorrowing and depressed. Love your neighbor as yourself requires you to compromise with yourselves. Are you willing to become a fool, weak, despised, hungry, thirst, naked, beaten, homeless, labor intensely, made as a filth of the world, as a scum? These are the words of the Apostle Paul. He said, I'm willing to do all this for your sake. And he's telling the Corinthians, he says, because I have compromised and become all this so that you will have these three things, wisdom, strength, and honor. I believe what the Apostle Paul is saying is that we compromise ourselves. We get into the dirty place. We get into the difficult situation so that the people that we serve, we get wisdom, strength, and honor. So they will get served. We have been redeemed to serve. Through Christ, we have been granted access to the Holy Spirit of the Father. The treasures of God's kingdom belong to the children of God. When Jesus redeemed us for himself, we are born again into the kingdom of God. Our conscience is cleansed, and now we are aware of our standing before God as righteous children through Christ Jesus. Jesus redeemed you. He brought you into the kingdom. You have access to God's storehouses, treasures. Um, Luther loves to use this illustration. You are a prostitute. The prince, the king's son, promised that he will marry you, and then he marries you. He brings you into the kingdom. And now your status before was a prostitute. Now your status is the queen. You feel the same. There's no difference in your feeling. The only difference is that now you are a queen instead of a prostitute. Now you are loved instead of hated. What do you do? You enjoy all of the treasure in the king's storehouse. This is a different sort of prince. This is the prince that would take a prostitute and transform her into a queen. This is a prince that loves people, that loves to elevate people's status. So as queen to this prince, your responsibility now is to perform all the works because that's what the queen does. The queen is supposed to fulfill the wishes of the king. All responsibility now that we have been bought by Christ into the kingdom of God, it is our responsibility to take this treasure and distribute it to the kingdom. That's our responsibility. And that's what makes us happy when we take this and we see other people are elevated from their status and into children of God. Christ's work becomes our work through the abolition of the self-preservation life. It means that before, when we are a sinner, when we are a prostitute, we are fighting for ourselves. But now that we have been redeemed, there's no need to self-preserve. We don't need to fight for ourselves anymore. We can freely use and dispense the gifts and the blessings of the kingdom for people. Secondly, we are made free from fears and selfishness. Before, we're on our own. We fight for ourselves. But now that we have been redeemed from sin and the sting of death is nullified, we are free. We're set free to do all those things that God has promised through Christ. Sharing the wealth of Christ becomes joy and life. As the bride of Christ, we are honored to distribute the king's wealth. Joy of service to God is restored as we commit ourselves to the kingdom's righteous work. Lastly, 
how work is profitable unto self. Spoke about how work is profitable unto men and now how work is profitable to ourselves. Three things. Number one, in service to God, we suppress the flesh. When we serve God, our sinful nature is suppressed. How is that? Human, we have two things that are constraints. Number one is the amount of energy that we have. And number two is the amount of time that we have. The economy works this way. If you spend your time and your energy, the good part of it, doing service to God, then you would use up that natural reserves so that it won't get used for sinful purposes. Let's say you have seven days. And let's say we flip this around. You go to church five days a week and you have two days for your other stuff. The bulk of your life or your week is spent for the kingdom's purpose and you have two days to do other things. Which means that the majority of your life is spent in God's service and only a small portion is spent in the world. So if you spend more time with God, then you will spend less time in the world. That's just a straightforward economy. So if we engage in good work or good service, now you don't have to be in church to do God's work. You can engage in work in good works all the time. For example, if you practice guitar, that is service to God. Why? Because when you practice your guitar, when you learn your Bible, when you, you meditate, when you pray, you are engaged in the kingdom's work and therefore it takes away from the work that you do, for example, watching YouTube. The more time that you spend for God, the less time you have for the world. Therefore, brethren, we are debtors not to the flesh to live after the flesh. For if we live after the flesh, ye shall die. But if ye through the Spirit do mortify the deeds of the flesh, then ye shall live. We need to play this market in such a way that we spend more time doing good works for the kingdom than we have less time doing sinful work for the flesh. That's it. That's one way good works benefit us. Our energy economy is straightforward. Spend more time in the kingdom, do good works. You have less time to do the works of the world. Results in sinful lust of the flesh. Number two, serving God brings satisfaction and peace. Not many things we do in life is appreciated. We can try our heart out and the work we do is not appreciated. And when they're not, we get discouraged, we get unhappy. It gets worse when we engage in fleshly and sinful pursuits. At the moment, it might feel good, but then we are ravaged by our conscience and the devil accuses us and make our lives miserable. When we are employed by the gospel of Christ, even though the flesh is tired, we become satisfied. When our energy is depleted, at the end of the day, there's joy, peace, knowing that we did something that God is pleased of. I think about when I'm in the mission field, and this is one of the reasons why engaging in mission is so important and critical part of our life. You are completely removed out of the day-to-day -day routine. I don't go to work, I don't do things that I normally would. When I'm in a, the mission field, all I'm doing is kingdom work, kingdom work, kingdom work, except for when I eat and when I sleep. 
Even though I'm tired, there might be things that make me irritable because I'm still human. But at the end of the day, I'm satisfied. I'm satisfied. You feel good. Martin Luther says this, the maid in the house that sweeps the floor, when she does it in honor to the master or the father, her service pleases God more than the monk in the monastery seeking after his own desire to please God through work. The work in service and in obedience to God is more gratifying than trying to find our justification through the work that we do. There's another example when the disciples, after Jesus was crucified, they were being persecuted, they get dragged before the, the council, they threatened them, they beat them, they made a public ridicule of the disciples. And this is what it says in Acts chapter 5, verse 41. And they departed from the presence of the council, rejoicing that they were counted worthy to suffer shame for Christ. They, they were happy, even though they were beat up. They were mistreated. They were happy because they engaged in the service of God. Um, serving God brings joy, everlasting joy to us. Lastly, serving God comes with great rewards. We don't think about this, and we should. We should think about this more. The reason is because Jesus promised this. And he said many times in the gospel, the rewards for your labor of love, it won't contribute to your salvation, but it will contribute to your life in Christ after this life is over. Because when you serve the body of Christ, especially, there is a service to the world and then there's service to the body of Christ. When you serve the body of Christ, in Hebrews chapter 10, verse 34 and 35. For ye have compassion on me in my bonds, and took joyfully the spoiling of your goods, knowing that in yourselves that ye have in heaven a better and an enduring substance. So the apostle, it sounds a lot like the apostle Paul, but I'm just going to say the apostle. Because you took care of me, because you care for me when I'm in bonds. The work that you do translate to tangible, substantive rewards in heaven, enduring substance in heaven. I'm thinking about, I'm thinking about Daniel, you're sitting there and you're playing guitar and you're trying to get here on Sunday, every Sunday you serve the church. That work, even though it might not felt like, oh, that's something easy for me to do. That work is an enduring substantive work, meaning it's tangible, and that translates into the kingdom of heaven. The work that you do, the work every Sunday we do, these work we do translate to things that are substance, that real substance in heaven. And he continues, he said, cast not away therefore your confidence, which hath great recompense of reward. So everything that we do have a reward in heaven. We don't yet know what it is, but we do know that in heaven, with Christ, well, I'm using this term is Socratic terminology than it is uh, biblical. But when we are with Christ, now that, that's biblical, when we are with Christ in the New Jerusalem, depending on your eschatology, there are different positions in the kingdom of heaven. There is a structure. When the mother of the sons of Zebedee came and says, Lord, can my sons, one on your left hand and one on your right hand? And Jesus says, well, it's not up to me. So we know that there is a structure in heaven, 
and depends on our work and our service, the reward in heaven will be different. Remember the talents? There are five, there's two, there's one, so on and so forth. There is no greater joy than knowing that your work in Christ's name for the gospel is everlasting. Even when you do it angrily, okay? Even when you do it in your flesh, I have to wake up, I have to go to church right now, and have to do this. Even so, there is a measure of reward for you because you're still fighting to overcome your flesh and to engage in that kind of work. Everything will fade away. But the soul that receives Jesus Christ will be in the presence because all of our work here will ultimately bring or nudge or open the door for someone to be encouraged. Your practice, the guitar, might encourage someone when they come into worship. Your food that you serve might bring people together. All work in the world might open the door for someone to come to know Jesus Christ. All these things will come together in some way, I believe, some way for the benefit of the kingdom. Uh, I'll close with this quote from the Apostle Paul in 2 Corinthians chapter 12, verse 10. Therefore, I take pleasure in infirmities, in reproaches, in necessities, in persecution, in distresses for Christ's sake. For when I'm weak, I'm strong. After we are saved, after we are justified, the next thing for us to do is to look outward and look at the people around us and serve them. So that's what we are to do after we are justified. Father, we thank you for your grace and for your calling. Lord, nothing that we do can ever amount to any kind of merit that will grant us some kind of uh, position in our, in our salvation. That work is done for us by Christ. But help us, Lord, uh, us to be selfless in our work of love, our labor of love, for the church, for the lost, and for ourselves, so that we can engage in the kingdom's work in service to people around us, for they need to know you through our love, through the service that we can do for your namesake, for your gospel. So I pray that you encourage us, you change us, Lord. The things that we do externally may be beneficial to the people that we serve. And in doing so, Lord, may you be glorified. May you be exalted in our lives. In the name of Jesus, we pray. Amen.